Hey everybody, welcome to week two of the class and it is day 25 on the quarantine count-up. A quarter of a hundred seems momentous somehow. Uh, I'm not sure if it's gonna go a hundred. It's actually the 10 weeks of the term is uh, 70 days and that's gonna put me close to a hundred by the time the term is over. Um, so uh, there it is, I don't know. I, I don't need to uh, dwell too much on it, but that's the quarantine count-up. Welcome to week two. Uh, this week in the course, we're going to be looking at political liberalism, the two central concerns of political liberalism. One, which we're going to cover today, consent of the governed, and then for the next class, uh, human rights. Those are both the, like, the key cornerstones of what it makes for political liberalism. Today we're going to look at two uh, main thinkers, Locke and Rawls, you have them for your reading, and they really are the two sort of central thinkers in the uh, tradition of political liberalism. Uh, they are attempting to answer the same questions and they have pretty different answers even though they take a, a very similar approach. And so we're gonna actually see two different uh, versions of what political liberalism can look like from going from the same starting point. Uh, speaking of starting points, Locke is really the very first liberal thinker. Uh, the first political philosopher to take seriously the notion of liberty as the primary political value. Uh, somebody's uh, phone is picking up. Siri wants somebody to talk to. I think Siri is getting a little cabin craze potentially around here. Anyway, sorry for the interruption, but there it is. I'm in my dining room. My kids' phones are plugged in, and uh, I'm talking to my phone, so the other phone thought I wanted to jump in. Uh, all right, where was it? That's right. Um, Locke is, he's the, he's the first liberal thinker, and he takes very seriously the notion that uh, liberty is the central political value, but that's not what he thought he was trying to do. That's not what he set out to do. He didn't say, liberty, I'm going to make that the centerpiece of my political thought. What Locke did was that, but what his specific task was, was how to ta take into account in political thinking uh, the existence of the sovereign individual, the sovereign rights-holding individual. Um, and uh, that is the centerpiece of Locke's political philosophy. I gotta stop for a second. Now that's some serious parenting. I had to remove my son's phone from the dining room so that the noises it was making weren't gonna bother me. Um, here it is, remote instruction in real time. It's getting kind of real. Uh, actually, it's not real at all, right? Because I'm just, for you, I'm on a two-dimensional screen. Um, it's just getting uh, messier, let's say. All right, <laughs> so what Locke's doing, take three. Um, Locke takes seriously the notion that the world is populated by uh, sovereign rights-holding individuals. that we exist in this world as distinct individuals who have a certain set of rights. And those rights are, for Locke, the rights to life, liberty, and property. That phraseology is borrowed with a slight change by the Declaration of Independence, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
which is actually kind of a watered-down version of Locke's set of rights because pursuit of happiness really sounds just like another way of talking about liberty. Or it's even just kind of a bossy way. It's like, well, you're free, so you have to pursue happiness. Like, well, what if I want to use my freedom to pursue uh, world peace or to pursue spiritual unity or to pursue power and uh, control, not happiness? This is something that I've talked about previously is that liberalism is you know, committed in general to not having a particular conception of the good. Well, the Declaration of Independence kicks property out and throws pursuit of happiness in. Property is actually an essential uh, part of the, of the rights that uh, Locke says we have coming into the world. Um, what Locke is trying to do is to say, how can we take seriously the existence of the sovereign rights holding individual? How can we uh, ex express in a political form what the world looks like when we put this individual at the center of our political thinking? Um, and by doing so, he puts liberty at the center of our political thinking. It's at the center of the list here. It's of the three. Uh, it is extremely uh, important because the reason why we have property is because through our free activity, we mix our labor with the earth and therefore sort of bring onto ourselves the products of our, of our labor. So property is an extension of our free activity. Um, and obviously the right to life is an underlying condition. If we don't have life, if we're, if we're either killed or we're uh, insecure in our life, then we don't have the ability to make decisions for ourselves. So liberty is the centerpiece of the, of the list of the three. Um, Locke frames his writing and his whole political thought in terms of uh, theological concepts whereby this rights-holding individual is a creation of God, and rights are essentially a result of the way that God created us. In fact, property is essential uh, part of uh, Locke's, theory, Locke's theory of why we have these rights in the first place. Property comes when you mix your labor with something in the world, and the product becomes yours. The product is essentially an extension of your labor. It's, it, it is a material manifestation of your free activity. Um, God mixed his labor with the universe and made us, and we are God's property, but he sort of turns over our life to us. He gives us uh, free will, and he gives us the ability to make choices for ourselves, and he gives us our rational faculties to make it possible to do so. Um, and so part of the reason we have the right to life is because God gives it to us. And part of the reason why, not part of the reason, the reason why we have the right to life is because if somebody takes our life, they're essentially stealing God's property uh, from the person that he, is, uh, that, he has given it in, that he has given it over to. Um, liberty is essential for protecting our life, right? The free activity is what we need to uh, engage in in order to be able to guarantee that we actually have life. Because other people may, through their free activity, respect our life, but they're not necessarily going to support it. So these three rights come together as a bundle. There's a theological concept that uh, sort of in, in Locke's writing upholds the rights holding sovereign individual. Um, but there's also a secular argument for this. And as liberalism has developed uh, and essentially takes Locke's ideas and takes it out of the theological context, um, the secular idea is that we as individuals come into this world with some set of rights. Uh, now, not every liberal thinker who accepts that proposition and builds their theory in a similar way to uh, the way Locke does accepts that we have the kind of right to property that Locke does. But all of them are doing what Locke did. They're starting with this premise. We have a sovereign rights-holding individual. 
And we have to respect that sovereign rights holding individual. But there are political forms in the world. There are governments uh, that very much through uh, you know, either authoritarian government or even democratic government will deprive us of our rights. Right? There's executions, we're a threat, uh, even a non-authoritarian government uh, is going to take our property in the form of taxation, possibly in the form of eminent domain. It's going to curtail our liberty uh, by uh, passing laws and <clears throat> all kinds of things. So, so even a uh, benevolent government a benign government is going to be impinging upon our rights. So Locke looks at the world and says, well, there's these political units and they are depriving us of our rights. How can that be, right? So the fundamental question that gets raised right at the beginning when you have a sovereign rights-holding individual is how can the government be legitimate? It's taking away our rights, and we are the rights-holding sovereign individual who's supposed to get to exercise those rights without interference. Um, there's a pretty quick, straightforward answer, and the answer is the topic of today's lecture, which is consent, consent of the governed. Liberty gives us the power, the right, uh, the authority, to turn over some of our rights to uh, somebody else. Uh, we are allowed to, for example, um, sell some of our labor, our free action, to someone else in exchange for the property that, 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 that they have uh, accumulated. We're allowed to say, okay, hey, you know, for $15 an hour, uh, I'll give you six hours of my liberty and you will give me the $75, no, the $90 uh, in exchange. We're allowed to make these voluntary exchanges. So, and that's consent. Consent is a voluntary exchange. Now, when we're talking about people at the micro level making uh, voluntary exchanges, it's relatively easy to see what that looks like. The person actually says, I want to do this, do you want to do this exchange? They do the whole thing, and we can say, well, there is consent, right? Um, when we're talking, you know, in, in the world that we live in today, we talk about sexual consent. It's, uh, you know, it needs to be clear, and uh, any, so that any sexual encounter has that voluntary, I mean, calling it an exchange is a little bit transactional, but that's what it is. Um, <clears throat> and we can know when consent has and hasn't been given in that micro context. When we're talking about consent of the governed, it raises a tricky question, which is how can we actually say that people are voluntarily giving over some of their rights to the government when uh, the decisions that the government are making are made without consulting that person? And we, the government doesn't actually get our specific consent. Um, you know, at lots of levels, like you didn't ask me, the, the federal government didn't ask me, I just did my, uh, I haven't filed it yet, but I just did my taxes, they didn't ask me if I wanted to pay this particular amount of money, if I was willing to exchange this amount of my income for the various kinds of services that I get from there. They just take it, right? And uh, if I don't pay it up, they're gonna charge me penalties, and if, if I don't pay those penalties, eventually I'm gonna go to jail. Um, I am not free not to do that. I didn't choose that, uh, that tax system. Uh, you can say, well, what you did was you voted for the people who uh, made that tax policy, and I'll be like, okay, I, yeah, I did, but you know, 
my people didn't all win, and I voted for them, but I only voted for them because that was the only way I had a voice in the system that exists that was created 200 plus years ago that I definitely, I wasn't around, I did not give my voluntary consent to the US Constitution, so how can it be said? So this, this, is, a, this is a problem that Locke and all of the uh, political liberals uh, take very seriously. Easy to say, how can government be legitimate? Consent to the governed, it's a voluntary exchange. But when, we have, when we're working at a macro and a historical uh, level, instead of just at a micro level between individuals who we can see them actually consenting, how can there be consent to the government? Um, and it is, a, it is a big question, like, is it possible? Or is government bound to be, in some way, a rights violator? Um, and therefore illegitimate, and uh, we can resist uh, legitimately what the government is doing because it doesn't have our consent. Um, it's just a war between us and uh, any kind of power structure that, that is telling us that we have to give over money and taxes or that we have to go give some kind of service so that we can't do uh, a certain kind of thing with our bodies or with our, or with our property. Um, there has to be an accounting of consent, and Locke takes that very seriously, he's the first one who does this. He basically kind of invents the political philosophy that's centered around consent, and his main work, uh, the Second Treatise of Civil Government, is dedicated to asking the question, how can we get consent of the governed? And then one of the things that makes this more than just a sort of foundational question, it's definitely a foundational question, but that makes it more than just a foundational question, is that in his account, the way that that consent is generated also tells us some things about what the government should look like and some of the things that it can't look like. So it then, uh, answering this foundational question, does more than create legitimacy, which is of course a, a central and primary concern, it also generates some critical standards, some constraints on what the government can and can't be like, what it has to be like, what it can be like, and what it can't be like. Um, and uh, this is actually one of the reasons why Locke's uh, theory is really, uh, you know, creates an entire political philosophy is because answering the consent question answers the other question of what is the government supposed to be like? Not just is it legitimate, but what is it supposed to be like? I mean, at one level, it's supposed to be like whatever it needs to be to be legitimate. It's supposed to be like whatever will generate the consent of the governed. Uh, now, how do we get there? One of the things I left off the list here that's important is we are actually a rational, sovereign, rights-holding individual. Our rationality is an important component of our human nature, right? Whether it's the theological accounting, God gave us free will as well as rationality. Free will is the ability to make choices for ourselves, and rationality is a tool, it's an instrument to help us make those decisions for ourselves. God didn't just give us free will and then be like, yeah, figure it out, work it out on your own. There's rationality. Um, the, the secular accounting says that we're a rational being. That's an essential part of what human beings are. We have rational faculties. We can take in information, process that, weigh different courses of action for what their potential consequences are, uh, balance uh, pros and cons, benefits and uh, problems of different choices, and make a choice to move towards uh, something else. We also have a kind of a higher rationality, as I've uh, talked about, a more philosophical, where we actually have the ability to not just use our rational mind as an instrument, but to form a conception of the good and say, this is what I want to move towards. This is what I want to use my instrumental rationality to move towards. Um, 
Locke does not have a tremendously robust accounting, at least in his political works, of how our rational minds work. And in fact, his epistemology, his theory of how the mind works, is, uh, really doesn't connect with his political works too terribly much. He's, he's the tabula rasa guy. The mind's a blank slate, and everything uh, we learn, we learn through our uh, experience, uh, which actually doesn't necessarily accord with the notion that we have uh, this rational faculty built in. Uh, it's not until Kant comes along and actually says, no, you know what, we take in all kinds of information, but we have uh, tools that are built into our brains that will, our minds, excuse me, in, in Kant's terms, that are built into our minds that uh, take this experience and this information and process it in certain ways, and that's what uh, rationality is. So, but Locke, in his political work, he, he says we, we have these rational faculties to choose a plan of life for ourselves, to choose the uh, means whereby we go after that plan of life. That's what's rational. If we're going to have consent of the governed, a voluntary exchange would be great if it were explicit, right? This is explicit. But we're not going to get that. And so, uh, barring an explicit consent, because I wasn't there at the Constitutional Convention, we, really it's kind of practically impossible to get the, the explicit consent of the governed on an ongoing basis. So what we need is we need implicit consent or implied consent. And how does consent get implied? It's implied via our rationality. Okay? It's implied because a rational being would choose to do, to give its consent to the government, and therefore the government is legitimate because it uh, adheres to the principles and plan that a rational being would accept voluntarily giving certain uh, rights over to. So the, then that raises the question of, okay, great. So. We know that the government has to be legitimate. We have to actually address the legitimacy because the individual is primary and any political form that seeks to rule over us uh, has, to be, uh, um, has to be consented to and it's going to be consented via this kind of abstract rationality. Well, how do you figure out what our abstract rationality is going to say yes to and not going to say yes to? Um, this is where Locke develops uh, an, an idea that was first introduced by Thomas Hobbes, the state of nature. The state of nature is a thought experiment. It's not supposed to be a real place. It's not supposed to be a historical period. There's no historical time that's being pointed to where people exist with no government. And that's what the state of nature is. It's essentially, it's Anarchy, in, in the uh, narrow technical term of anarchy meaning no rules, not anarchy meaning uh, chaos. Um, it's anarchy, it's no government at all. And what there are, or is, is just a set of sovereign individuals. Separate sovereign individuals. If we're going to get to a legitimate government, we have to start where there is no government. That is what makes sense to uh, Locke in terms of how do we figure out uh, if the government can be legitimate, how, could, how do we figure out what it will look like if it is legitimate. We have to start with just what we have with our, with our primary foundation, individuals, nothing else. That's not what history looks like, it's not what any kind of situation ever looks like, but 
that is the thought experiment that we have to engage in. And the reason why a thought experiment makes sense to Locke is because our rational consent is going to be an abstract rational consent. We're not going to take a bunch of actual rational individuals, put them in a room and say, hey, devise a plan of government and that plan will be uh, the plan that fits the, that, that, that creates the model for all legitimate governments everywhere. Part of the reason why you can't just do that, why you can't essentially have a, a sort of you know, workshop constitutional convention uh, and why Locke didn't do that, he didn't focus group the second treatise of civil government is because we are rational but we are also imperfect. Um, and, and this fits the, both the theological and the secular conception of the sovereign rights holding individual. Rationality is one of our faculties, but it is not our only faculty. Um, we are also emotional, we're instinctual, uh, uh, we, we are, our, our minds are in fact in some ways a kind of a battleground of the different urges, drives, and voices, one of which is our instrumental rationality that helps us make decisions to move towards uh, our conception of the good, but it's not the only voice. So uh, much like we can't run the state of nature as a historical experiment because there's nowhere to go uh, to have a, a, you know, a state of nature, um, you can imagine one, like that's what Lord of the Flies is about, and you can, you can, you can create works of fiction, um, but we can't run a historical experiment. And we can't then also, or excuse me, we can't look to history for it, but we also can't run a historical experiment. We put a bunch of people in it, into a room and say, hey, what would you rationally consent to? What kind of government would, would you do? Because those people are gonna be a mixture of their rationality and their other faculties. Um, what you can do, because it sounds, you know, like saying that, it sounds like, well, I guess this is kind of a flawed approach if, 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 if uh, we, human beings are a mixture of rational as well as all these other drives. Uh, then I guess that we can't actually seek some kind of abstract uh, rational consent. But what Lo in Locke's hands, what Locke believes we can do is we can actually, as philosophers, he, as a philosopher, and he, we're supposed to be able to follow in his, his steps, we can abstract away only instrumental rationality in the state of nature and follow along with this thought experiment of what would a purely rational uh, being do or what would a being that is using only its rational faculties to make decisions, what would that being do? And uh, one of the things about this conception that is, maybe you're noticing it already, maybe you thought of it as you read Locke, uh, is Locke is assuming that there is an answer. Um, his work follows the path of a singular, abstract, rational individual in the state of nature uh, and says, okay, here, here is the way that rationality takes us through this particular uh, situation. And this is what the starting point looks like, this is the decisions that, that, that happen, and this is the, the ending point. It's a reasonable question to ask, well, why does there have to be one answer to what a rational, instrumentally rational being would do in the state of nature? Couldn't there be multiple answers to that, and I, I think that's a legitimate question, um, and I'm not going to pursue that question any farther than that, except to note that it's really a hard one to answer. Political liberalism is essentially stuck with the notion that there is one answer to this foundational puzzle of what will people in a uh, pre-government situation, Locke calls it the state of nature, we're going to talk about Rawls later, Rawls calls it the original position, 
what would uh, people do in that? And in order for this to be a useful exercise, to both generate legitimacy as well as to then turn the steps that create that legitimacy into essentially a plan of government, or at least a set of principles um, and constraints that tell us what government has to be, what it can be, and what it can't be, um, liberalism is committed to a singular uh, form of abstract rationality. And that's problematic because, one, why? Why metaphysically does there have to be uh, one answer? I mean, this is where the theological conception actually comes in handier than the secular conception because we could just say, well, God just, you know, it, God created this rationality for us and it has a particular nature to it. There's a, there's a oneness to it because it was the creation of God. When we have a more secular version, we say, well, ra our rationality is one of the tools that has developed uh, um, through the process of evolution that gave us all of our different faculties and our drives and our emotions and our instincts. Um, it, in that case, it, it's harder to say that there is one rationality with a capital R. But liberals are committed to this unless they are going to abandon the avenue of consent as the sort of the inroad into what the political system should look like. And that's a difficult uh, thing to abandon because what are you left with? How do we then answer the legitimacy of government? Now, I'm not saying there aren't other ways to do that, um, and there are, but it's, it, it's a trickier path. If you can posit a singular abstract rationality and you can place that rationality into a pre-government situation where there's nothing but sovereign rights holding individuals and follow that story, then you're going to get a, a singular blueprint. And that's what Locke does. Um, Rawls does the same thing with a higher level of complexity um, and with uh, a set of presuppositions about what the world looks like that are different than Locke's. But he absolutely shares not just his commitment to kind of answering the, the legitimacy question via rational consent. He absolutely shares the uh, commitment to a kind of a singular form of rationality. So that right there, this is a class on liberalism and its critics. Right there, you should be able to see, oh, okay, here's, a, here's an opening for the critics uh, to, uh, to get into this and say, well, why? why? Why should there only be one answer to what would a rational being do? Part of the answer is, if we're going to do this consent thing, it's necessary uh, because if we have too much variability, if we have any, you know, if we have a, if we have variability in what a rational being will do, then maybe we're not going to get our implied consent, and that would mean if our starting point is that we have sovereign rights holding individuals and we can't legitimize the government, that that means the government is fundamentally illegitimate, and that is a that's that's absolutely a problem. Uh, from the point of view of liberalism because it creates a paradox. Uh, the paradox is we want to put the, the sovereign rights-holding individual uh, first and at the center of our political philosophy, but it doesn't allow us to actually have a political philosophy. So that would potentially mean either accepting that fundamental paradox and just brushing it off and moving along, or acknowledging that maybe it doesn't make any sense to put the sovereign rights-holding individual first and as the centerpiece of our political philosophy. But that's absolutely what liberalism is doing, at least in the hands of uh, Locke and the people who kind of do the same kind of thing that he does. And that's the dominant strain in uh, political liberalism. So how does it go down? Um, the state of nature, there's no government, there are individuals only, there are individuals with the rights to life, liberty, and property. Um, so Locke starts the thought experiment, and what happens? Well, 
he sees that there are individuals only there. There are no social structures. Um, but he does recognize enough diversity in the, in the choices that people are going to make. Just because there's a singular abstract form of rationality as a tool doesn't mean people are all going to make exactly the same decisions. People are going to make different decisions as to what to do with their liberty. People, are, people have different uh, physical capacities to mix uh, their labor with the earth, and so there's going to be differences in the kind of uh, amount of property people get, the, the, the kind of property that they go after. The landscape is going to be different, right? Like I, I might be a, you know, a sovereign rights-holding individual in a place where it's really easy to just pick a bunch of berries and uh, hunt animals, and I can just be a hunter-gatherer and fully satisfy whatever uh, needs I have. Someone else living in a different environment might actually have to uh, reshape that environment and engage in agriculture. They're going to grow orchards instead of picking berries. They're going to sow wheat. So we're going to get differences in how people live their lives. And uh, what that does mean also, we're going to get different ideas about what, how we should go along. There is going to be conflict. Liberty automatically creates conflict. Absolutely. That's, that, that's fundamental. So conflict is built into the state of nature. Sovereign individuals are going to come into conflict with each other. And what this means is that we're going to have potential rights violations, right? When, for example, um, I think that, you know, I've been, I've been taking care of this, uh, this raspberry bush and I've been watering it and I've been picking the berries from it and then someone else comes along and it's like, oh, hey, raspberry bush. And they pick the raspberry like, hey, no, those are my raspberries. And the person's like, they're not your raspberries, they just belong here. It's like, no, I've been mixing my labor with it by watering it and by tending it and by keeping pests away. Um, and the other person's like, no, I, I didn't see any of that. Like, you know, that's, that's, that's bullshit. These are just free raspberries out here. This is just, I mean, it's kind of a, you know, it, it, it's a, perhaps a petty little example, but it just shows, and you can just multiply the examples by, by 10 million, that there's going to be conflict. And um, what is potentially also going to happen, right? Locke is committed to the idea that there is a singular abstract rationality that we all have and we can follow its story through the state of nature. But he also acknowledges that people have passions and that what will happen when we have conflict is there's going to be uh, the potential for rights violations. So the guy who picked the raspberries uh, doesn't give them up to the person who believes that they're uh, his raspberries, and the guy who believes that his raspberries grabs them away, and the other guy fights back, and they punch each other. And uh, so you know the, uh, the the person who's been tending the raspberry bush, you know, basically injures the person that was trying to. They thought just hunt and gather. Um, they both think they're right, and. Both of them probably have had their rights violated, but one person has had their rights violated at minimum, and that person might not have been able to actually protect their own rights. Uh, conflict leads to the need for enforcement, and uh, the right to enforcement is an implied and secondary right to the rights to life, liberty, and property. These rights themselves are not self-enforcing. And so when conflict arises, that gives rise to the right to enforcement. This right is problematic in the state of nature. Um, Locke refers to it as inconvenient. There are a number of inconveniences in the state of nature. And this is for those of you who are aware of uh, Hobbes and his writings and possibly read Hobbes uh, before for other classes or just for enjoyment. 
Hobbes' state of nature, which is no government, individuals only, is a bleak and horrible place, right? It's not just conflict-ridden, it's a war of all against all, where life is nasty, brutish, and short. And uh, that is, uh, that's a place where Hobbes sees the rational response is to create this really powerful uh, sovereign that has total power over us to end this horrible situation. Locke doesn't follow Hobbes's view, and Hobbes is not really the first liberal, even though he, he, he gets to the state of nature idea and the idea of the rational individual uh, in the state of nature well before Locke does, because Hobbes's answer is not a liberty-respecting answer, right? He basically says, oh, no, 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 it's so terrible, we're just going to taunt, like, these rights are, get, get rid of them, give them to someone else, protect me. Um, so Hobbes has some moves that are very similar to what Locke has, but he does not end up with a liberty-loving answer, whereas Locke does. And part of the reason why Locke is able to get there is because he sees a way less bleak, a way less Mad Max version of what the state of nature is. Um, the right to enforcement is inconvenient. And it's inconvenient for a couple of reasons. Um, it's bound to lead to further problems. Um, and the two biggest problems are, one, because of, despite our rationality and because of our passions, we're going to have a predilection towards favoring our own view in a conflict, right? Like the two people in the raspberry uh, scenario, they both think they're right. And it's natural. They're not being irrational. They have a different perspective. They have different information. And of course, each of them believes they're right. Now that might not always happen, right? It might happen that one of the people can be like, oh, okay, I can see things from your perspective and I am gonna change my view. It doesn't mean that just because uh, we have a predilection to, be, to favor ourselves means that we're always going to do that. But it's gonna happen, and it's gonna happen a lot. And what that means is when you tend to favor your own uh, view, you might potentially violate somebody else's rights. Um, so here's a different example. I use this one in class a lot. Like I have a cow and uh, I go to sleep and I wake up and the cow's gone. Somebody stole my cow. And uh, you know, I'm, of course, my passion side says, I can't believe this happened. I'm gonna go find whoever, found my, whoever stole my cow. And my property has been taken from me. And I have a legitimate right to enforce my right to property. So. Even in the state of nature, I have the right to go out and find the malefactor and get my cow back and possibly even punish them to a certain extent that is reciprocal to what kind of injury I have enjoyed. Because now I've had to bend my day around going and hunting this cow uh, thief and I have to use some of my resources that I could have used to milking the cow or plowing a field to hunt down the malefactor. So I have a right to get some kind of compensation so that things are balanced out to be the way they would have been if uh, before uh, my right to property was violated. So all of that is legitimate, but what's likely to happen, uh, and it's, it's gonna, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be likely as a certain percentage, but what will definitely happen at least more than zero times in the state of nature is that somebody will misapply their right to enforcement by, for example, I go down the road and the first person I see is my neighbor who I've never liked very much and he's got a cow that looks just like mine. You stole my cow. It's like, no, I didn't steal your cow. I just bought this, uh, I just bought this cow uh, at the market. Um, look, that's exactly my cow. You stole my cow. And uh, now I go up and I take that cow and maybe I take some, a, a bushel of apples and I push the guy down and I punch him. If that person is not the thief of my cow, then I have now violated their rights. 
and now I've created a sort of chain of rights violation. He has every right now to extract punishment or exact punishment on me for violating his rights, for stealing his apples and his cow and for, for uh, pushing him down and, and hurting him. So uh, it's inconvenient because this kind of thing is going to happen, right? This is just the way it is. And, you know, one of the reasons why government exists uh, is to uh, prevent this kind of vigilante uh, misapplication of justice. Um, there's a just thing. I go out and I find the person who actually stole my cow. But that, you know, it takes a lot. The first person I see with a cow is probably going to be the one that I'm going to uh, uh, assume did it. So that's one of the inconveniences, is that we're going to favor ourselves. The other major inconvenience is that maybe we actually lack the power to ex exact the uh, punishment, to enforce our rights, uh, and so our, uh, uh, the, violation of our, the original violation of our rights goes unredressed. So I go down the street, I see the cow, I see the neighbor, and I say, hey, you stole my cow. And the neighbor's like, yeah, that's right, I stole your cow, what are you gonna do about it? And I'm like, I'm gonna take my cow back, and that neighbor prevents me from taking the cow back and actually punches me in the face and sends me away crying. And now, uh, we, we now have, because of my physical incapacity, the original violation of rights has gone um, Un, uh, unredressed, and now there's a new violation of my rights as I've been physically attacked by somebody that I'm actually un trying to serve justice onto. So these two main inconveniences are going to hit home to the rational uh, being. You don't actually have to go through these scenarios in person, in real life, to be able to imagine, to use your rational faculty to imagine that they're going to happen, and to be able to tell come to the conclusion that Locke comes to, which is that the right to uh, enforcement is inconvenient, right? And it's inconvenient because we have, a, um, we are, uh, uh, what was the word? We have a predilection to um, believe our own view. I can't even, it's not self-serving, it's, uh, anyway. Um, we have a, a predilection to see things from our own pr perspective, and we might not have the power to do so. A rational being, then, is going to say, oh, Rationality is great at addressing problems. That's what, that's what instrumental rationality is for. The higher rationality is great at conceiving of a, um, a concept of the good that we can move towards. Instrumental rationality is the tool that we use to solve problems, to weigh options, to, to figure out costs and benefits. The benefit of the state of nature is that no one tells us what to do. The cost of the state of nature is that the right to self-enforcement is inconvenient, and that is potentially very problematic because our rights are going to be perpetually insecure. Even when we have a downplayed version from Hobbes' War of All Against All, we're still going to be insecure. So we're inconvenient, and we're insecure in our rights. We're not living in terror. Life is not messy, British and short. Uh, there can be all kinds of cooperative uh, and non-conflictual uh, interactions between uh, individuals and Locke acknowledges that that's what a lot of life could be like in the state of nature, but it's going to have at least this problem. And the rational mind says, aha, that's a problem. And I've honed in, I've analyzed the situation. This is what instrumental rationality is all about. It's about uh, a rational analysis and uh, a coming, coming up with the way to solve that problem. What is the problem? The problem is the right to self-enforcement. What is the solution? The solution is you turn over the right to enforcement to somebody that doesn't have those same problems, right? So the solution, this is the problem, and then the solution is an outside entity 
is somebody that is impartial and powerful. And that is the government, right? Now, already you should be seeing that uh, one thing we're learning about what the government has to be is it has to be an impartial arbiter. This is one of the values that emanates from the state of nature theory, uh, as it's applied by Locke, um, that government has a responsibility to correct the inconvenience of the state of nature. People are going to turn over their rights. They're going to rationally consent, implied, but in this story it's going to actually be, you know, these fictional characters are going to voluntarily do it. Um, the, to, they're giving over the right to uh, enforcement to solve a particular problem. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to give up something that's valuable, because all your rights are valuable, even this problematic, inconvenient, insecure right to enforcement. You don't want to give up something that's valuable unless it's actually going to get you something back. That's what rationality tells us uh, is necessary. So if, if, if partiality, that's the word for it, partiality, if partiality is one of the problems, and powerlessness is the other problem, then impartiality and power uh, are, are necessary features of the government. Now, impartiality is, you know, now we have a political problem. How do we set up a system whereby the judges of these disputes that are going to arise, um, naturally, the, uh, is impartial? And how do we then also make sure that uh, the government is powerful enough to make sure that violations of rights uh, do not go unaddressed. That is going to be uh, sort of a problem of political design. Locke doesn't get into the problem of political design, and neither really does, does Rawls. Rawls gets a little bit more into what institutions are going to be like, but, but political liberalism at this level is really more about finding principles and not necessarily workable, effective solutions. The principles are going to be used to, to guide the creation of these effective solutions, and it's going to be used as a critical standard for judging whether or not our, our uh, political structures are actually legitimate, because uh, we have to have a system. If, if a system creates uh, partiality, um, then we can say it's not legitimate, right? Because no rational being would, would consent to give up something for something that's just as bad um, which there's, there's partiality, only worse because now you've given up this valuable thing, your right to self-enforcement, and now you've created a powerful government that's, that's partial towards certain kinds of people. That can be a criticism of, of power structure. That's one of the reasons why you go through this thought experiment, is not just to determine the legitimacy of the government, but to determine what principles will be used to, one, design a government that is legitimate, and two, critical standards to be able to say, well, this government is slightly illegitimate in this way, and so we have to fix uh, this feature so that we can actually have legitimacy. Uh, the right to enforcement is the problem. The right to property is not a problem. The right to life and liberty are not problems. This is the problematic one, right? So uh, we as rational individuals, or the abstract, singular abstract rational individual, is only going to turn over the right to enforcement. Um, but this does bring with it something else that's implied, and that is that enforcement is not automatic, right? Rights don't self-enforce, and the government doesn't 
have the ability to be impartial and powerful uh, for free. So these things are going to cost resources. And because they're going to cost resources, the government has to have some mechanism for extracting those resources, or excuse me, I shouldn't say for extracting, for gathering those resources in order to be able to do the job that it has been charged with doing by the rational individuals that say, hey, we need somebody to be impartial and powerful to, to adjudicate and enforce these conflicts of rights that are inevitably going to happen in any society, even one of rational beings. Uh, Okay, great. So we'll do it, but it's going to cost, and why don't you just give us what we need in order to be able to foot that bill? Now, some, you know, some people are going to be like, sure, that's, that's great. You know? And others are going to say, but no, I like my property. The reason I'm giving you this right is because I want my property to be secure. You can't be taking my property, my money, uh, to, in order to be able to protect my property. Uh, the government say, yeah, we can, because that is implied. If you imply the ends... You imply the, or excuse me, if if you want to serve the ends that you're asking for, you imply that the necessary means have to be given over. Um, so the ends not justifies the means; the ends implies consent to the means. And so the cost and resources may have to be extracted. But and here's the genius part of this whole way of talking about it, and it is a necessary step from the state of nature into civil society, is that. When you turn over your right to enforcement, you also turn over as much of your liberty and property as is necessary to actually make this an effective transfer. It wouldn't be rational not to do that. Um, so the singular abstract rationality says, okay, here's a problem, we have a solution to it, and there's means that are needed to make that solution workable, so we rationally consent to those means as well. So what you have done is... Uh, created a power over you, but not a power that has any more power than you would rationally give to it. And you are going to jealously guard, it's rational to jealously guard your cluster of rights. These are just good things. And a rational being, whatever differences we might think there are in different approaches to applying instrumental rationality, one thing for sure is uh, pretty straightforward in all accounts of rationality is it's not rational to give away something that's valuable for nothing in return, right? What our rationality helps us to do is decide when we want to give away something valuable, we, we're, we're going to do it in a way that's going to return us something that's equally or more valuable. That's rationality. And, and th that is definitely key to the singular abstract notion of rationality, but I think it also makes just kind of common sense. I think that it would be hard to have any accounting of what a rational being is like if that's not the basic... Uh, structure of the thought process. Now, you don't always succeed, right? Even in, when we have voluntary exchanges, you give up something and you expect that the thing you get will be at least as valuable, if not more valuable. And we make mistakes all the time. In, in reality, you're like, oh, I want that thing and it's worth, it costs $500, it's worth $500 to me, it's going to give me way more than $500 in joy, it's going to give me way more joy and usefulness than something else that costs $500. Uh, so I'm going to do that. And then we get it and we're like, oh, this, was, this, is, this is not worth what I paid for. We make mistakes, right? Um, and rationality, the possession of rationality does not promise that we're not going to make mistakes. And of course, we make mistakes, one, because we have other things besides our pure rationality in, in uh, that decision, right? You're like, oh, I love that car. That's such a beautiful car. I love it. I love it. That's not your rationality that is speaking that. That's some kind of uh, internal desire or drive. And so we often make decisions that are a mixture of rationality and emotions or, 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 or desires or instincts. 
Um, but even if we made purely rational decisions, because we don't have all of the information, we can't predict the future, our instrumental rationality can't predict the future, we can't know exactly how much satisfaction something that we pay for is going to give us. So we're essentially taking a risk. Every exchange is a certain kind of risk. The rational being will attempt to minimize that risk um, to, or to make it so that uh, even though you can't eliminate that risk, that, it's, that in all of the exchanges that you make, you're in aggregate going to be getting more for what you give over. So, um, the, but getting back to the sort of fundamental maxim that, you're, that it's rational not to give up something valuable if you don't get something at least as valuable in return, it would be foolish from the point of view of uh, the state of nature to turn over more than the right to enforcement and the necessary property and liberty uh, because maybe the cost and resources is that everybody has to kick in 10 hours a week to you know, do a neighborhood patrol or to working in a coal mine to, to, to sell coal to pay for uh, the impartial judges and, and, and the enforcers. Whatever it is, it's some combination of liberty and property. We definitely rationally uh, voluntarily give over the necessary means, but we're not going to give more. And that means that the government is a limited government because this is a legitimate government, one that that does this, but it's limited. And this is the key to what Locke kind of creates as the heart and soul of, uh, liberal, uh, of political liberalism, is the notion, one, legitimacy is, excuse me, we start with a, with a sovereign rights only individual. We need legitimacy, legitimacy is a key concept. Consent gives us legitimacy. And what we end up getting is a limited government, not unlimited. And this is where Hobbes went wrong. Hobbes was like, we need an absolute sovereign to solve this horrible situation of the war of all against all. Um, for Locke, it's an inconvenient, insecure place, and the solution is a limited solution. It would not be rational to give over more than the bare necessity to this new entity. It would, in fact, be counterproductive. You're creating a dangerous thing anyway. You're creating something that's powerful. And so if it's not well-constructed, um, it can actually trample our rights and make our lives worse than they were in the state of nature. Um, and that is precisely what a rational uh, being is attempting not to do, is to make an exchange that makes them worse off. So the limited government aspect is essential. So really building up uh, a set of uh, concepts that uh, all are part of the cluster of what are the boundaries and outlines of what a legitimate government can be. It has to be impartial, it has to be powerful enough, um, it can't be more powerful than that, it has to be uh, a limited government. Anything more is not rational to consent to. So the government is limited then, the limitations are that all it does is enforce our rights. Now that's a pretty uh, complex task and it involves a lot of different things. For example, um, it's, there, there's going to be a need to uh, manifest impartiality in more than just impartial judges who don't, uh, you know, sort of take sides uh, without all the facts um, and always favor their brother-in-law or their children who work in the White House or whoever it happens to be. It's more complex than just being impartial in that straightforward sense because um, there might be differences of opinion as to what is right and wrong in the first place. and. Uh, which conflicts uh, are, um, or excuse me, what, what, uh, where there are boundaries for conflicts and what penalties are deserved for violations of those things. So for example, um, there's going to need to be an accounting of 
exactly what it is that generates a right to property. So getting back to the raspberry example, right? We had a disagreement there that was based on a different perspective on what gives property to the to the person who watered and cared for and, and depested uh, the raspberry bush. They were mixing their labor with it, and therefore those raspberries belonged to that person. To the to the other person who came along, that raspberry bush was was just in a state of it was in a state of nature. It's, it, nobody's mixed their labor with it, and it's legitimate. Part of enforcing rights is going to be defining all of those boundaries. Uh, and this gets back to what I was t uh, in the which liberty lecture, defining the boundaries of the harm principle, right? What does and doesn't cross that boundary? There are going to be almost innumerable specific questions that are going to get raised, and part of what the government does in being impartial is it essentially decides on where the boundaries are and uh, publishes those so that everybody knows, and then the punishments for crossing those boundaries are also published and well-known. All of that is part of impartiality, right? And again, this, this will now cost resources. It's more than just saying, okay, we're going to adjudicate fights over things. But to even know if somebody's right to property has been violated, we have to have an accounting of whether or not they actually legitimately mix their labor with something that was uh, unmixed with already, and that that property therefore belongs to them. Um, if we're going to say, well, you crossed somebody else's boundary, you, you violated their liberty by you know, scaring them, by uh, whipping a bunch of knives around in a public place, that's gonna, that we're, the person who's doing that needs to know that that's wrong. It needs to be known that there's a boundary. So the government is limited in its role, its conceptual role, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's tiny. It doesn't necessarily mean that it does very little. It just... It, it, it does as much as it needs to do to, to define uh, the boundaries, to account for what property, to account for what are legitimate voluntary exchanges. Um, there are going to have to be all kinds of rules, right? Just because I hand over money to somebody and they give me a product doesn't need, necessarily mean that was a voluntary exchange. If they lied to me, if they gave me false information, if they concealed flaws in it, um, if they uh, told me that somebody else was offering them $500 and they're going to give it to me for $500 or for uh, you know, $510, and that's, that's not true, there's going to be all kinds of things that are necessary to uphold voluntary exchanges, which is what liberty is all about, right? Liberty is voluntary exchange. Um, <clears throat> it's, I mean, it's more, excuse me, it's more than just voluntary exchange. It's also cho freely choosing what you do uh, with your body and with your resources. But one of the big things that, that liberty is is voluntary exchange. So in order to make sure our right to liberty is upheld, uh, exchanges have to be policed for voluntariness. Uh, so the government may have a lot of tasks to do, even when it's limited. Limited does not necessarily mean small. What it means is that the government can't do other things. The government can only take our liberty and property insofar as it's necessary to do this job, right, to, to enforce our rights. It can't, for example, say, well, you know, you know what would be good? It would be really good to have a uh, cheap source of power, and uh, we're going to um, build a dam, and uh, we didn't get enough voluntary contributions for the dam, so we're going to tax people, and we're going to build the dam, and we're going to generate all this uh, power. That falls outside the limited government role, unless generating that cheap power is necessary to keep costs down in other ways. So like, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to tax you to pay for a dam, and that dam is going to be used to generate really cheap power. We're going to charge 
uh, like pre-dam rates, and then, and then we're going to be able to tax you less because we're going to have a revenue source that's going to give us resources. So the original taxation to build the dam was essentially just a deft version of taxation to do the fundamental role. But the, the government can't say, well, you know, everybody needs power, and uh, we want to provide cheap power for you whether you want it or not. We're going to provide this social good for you. So the government is limited to enforcing rights. Anything beyond that, the provision of social goods, uh, any kind of uh, you know, charitable activity, anything that, should, that individuals would say, hey, no, I didn't consent to that, uh, and you can't trace my consent to it through my original turning over to you the right to enforcement, is going to be off limits for the government. So Locke is usually seen as kind of the great-grandfather of libertarianism, and that is absolutely the case in the sense that uh, libertarians have as their fundamental uh, notion the fact that the government is limited to one job, enforcing your rights. Um, libertarians disagree amongst themselves about what that uh, might require, and it actually is, as I hope that you get an appreciation for, enforcing rights involves a lot of activities. Um, but everything the government does has to be able to be referred back to its primary mission of enforcing rights. Because the only thing it's rational in the state of nature to turn over is the right to enforcement. It's the only problem. These are good things. The reason it's a problem is because it makes these insecure and it's inconvenient to do our enforcing ourselves. The right to self-enforcement is not uh, very useful to us at all. Um, one additional right that we get by the creation of the government, because it's supposed to be limited to this role, is we then also get the right to rebellion, or the right to revolution. This is implied, because if the government is not impartial, and it's using its power either uh, to uh, you know, violate our rights instead of enforce them, or it's not using enough power and its uh, rights violations are going uh, unaddressed, or it's doing more than it's legitimately supposed to do. It's actually, say, extracting resources to build pyramids or to build dams. And then the individuals, it's rational to say, hey, I'm going to rebel against this. And, uh, because the thing that we rationally told you you're supposed to do, you're not doing. And it would be irrational to continue abiding by that. Uh, so the, the rational individual is going to grant this right to enforcement goes to the government, right? goes to the government, but then also reserving the right to revolution and reserving as big of a portion of these as possible. The only things you get to take of our life and our property, I shouldn't have included liberty because you don't ever give that up, uh, the only bit of your life and property that can be given over is the necessity, the necessary costs. So it's as little of a grant as possible for as big of a benefit, and then there's a clause, the res the, 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 the uh, Reservation of the right to revolution. That's Locke. Uh, and again, there's a singular conception of rationality at the heart of this. This entire account is Locke's way of saying, this is the only rational solution to the state of nature. So if you followed and accepted the premises that went into creating this thought experiment, and you buy the fact that we need uh, legitimacy via consent, and that consent has to be implied, and then that, that uh, implied consent has to be rational, then I've done it. Uh, so you, we can criticize Locke in a number of different ways. There are all of those points of vulnerability. Point number one is that we don't start 
with the sovereign rights holding individual and say that this is, the, is prior to all government. If we believe that individuals are social creations and we come into the world into a social uh, setting and uh, into a historical situation where there's already a, a culture and uh, a societal norms and a political system, then it doesn't make any sense to use the state of nature. Uh, once you do this, though, legitimacy and consent pretty much follow along logically. Like, there's, it, it's hard to say that, that we're going to, we, if, we, if we put this sovereign rights holding individual at the centerpiece of our uh, political thinking, that we can take any other avenue. How do we skirt the how can the government be a legitimate question? That's like the first question that pops up. Um, so that's Locke, and uh, two things I'm going to do, I'm going to step aside and let this board look, and I'm going to go around to the other side and see how far along the video is, because since this is not a classroom uh, that starts at you know, 8 o'clock and ends at 9.50, I have really no idea what how much time I have left. One hour and 34 seconds. Okay, that, uh, that means that I have as m at most 50 minutes left to do uh, Rawls, and that should be more than enough. <clears throat> Rawls does the same thing, but he does it with different uh, presuppositions about what the thought experiment should look like. Instead of using the state of nature, Rawls uses a thing he calls the original position. which in my mind is the most ridiculous term in all of philosophy, right? And how, how can you not think about all the sexual connotations? But also, what does it mean, right? It basically means the abstract state of nature. It's a way of saying, oh yeah, the state of nature is kind of a problematic term because it conjures this primitive setup, it conjures uh, Native Americans, uh, it conjures the notion that this actually existed, so like, we have to get around that. So, Rawls renames it, and I just think that it's, it's just atrocious naming. Uh, in any case, the original position is exactly what the state of nature is. It is a situation where there's no government, there are individuals only, and there's going to be a rational decision made to create a government, or at least to create principles that are going to dictate what the government's going to look like. Same thing that Locke is doing. Um, it's just now even more abstract because there's not even some kind of story involved. Um, and in fact, what the original position is, in uh, uh, Rawls's view, there is a story, or there's a sort of a cinematic setting that's possible for that story. It's that there are rational individuals, essentially in a room, <laughs> who are deciding what they would rationally consent to uh, create in a government. Um, and uh, in order to make this abstractly rational, or a singular abstract rationality, Rawls builds that initial decision-making uh, um, scenario, he builds it differently. Because in Locke's, the state of nature does imply that there's kind of this story where there's people on the ground, and they're walking around, they're mixing their labor, they're getting into conflicts, there's actually like a, a, a set of human interactions, and there's a through line of the rational individual looking at the inconveniences and insecurities of that situation is gonna say, oh, okay, we gotta figure our way out of this uh, particular situation. So there, there is a kind of a real life aspect to it, even though it's a thought experiment. And to Rawls, like, you can't let there be that kind of on the ground reality if we're gonna have a singular abstract form of rationality. We have to, we have to uh, abstract even 
more away. We have to pull away even more. And so um, what he does is he basically says, we're going to put the abstractly rational individuals into a room. And individuals, he kind of speaks as though it's a group of people, but because it's a singular rationality, it actually only needs to be one person. We're going to put them in a room, and we're going to say, what is it rational to consent to in the construction of a government? So it's the same task. There's no government, and the government is going to be created. There's going to be a plan. There are going to be principles, and there are going to be boundaries. There are going to be things the government has to do, things the government can do, and things the government can't do. Um, doing it this way might land us with a different solution than Locke's story, his limited government. And in fact, it absolutely does. And partly because Rawls goes super abstract, but also because Rawls makes a couple of different presuppositions than, uh, than Locke. Locke starts off with sovereign rights-holding individuals, rational sovereign rights-holding individuals, and those rights are given to Rawls, there is, and I'm gonna put this off to the side because it's not part of the original position, but it's part of the it's part of the accounting. To Rawls, there are what he calls primary social goods. There are things, and these are goods as in the sense that they're good, right? They're good for you. Uh, they're they're useful. The primary social goods come in three categories. There's rights and liberties. Um, offices and opportunities and wealth and income. Now, one thing to note about this is these are social goods. Rights and liberties in Locke's account adhere to individuals. People come into the world with these things. In Rawls' account, rights and liberties exist not fundamentally possessed by the individual, they exist as social productions, right? The only reason you have rights at all uh, is because there's been some kind of cooperative arrangement that generates and enforces those rights. Um, and the list of rights and liberties for Rawls is going to be different because some of those rights are political rights, like the right to vote. The right to vote doesn't make any sense in the state of nature because there's nothing to vote on, there's no government. Um, the right to vote uh, is one of those things that we know in a society is going to be an important possession. It's going to be a good thing. Even if you don't vote, you don't want your right to vote taken away. That's what a good is, is that even if it's something you don't necessarily use, it's better to have more of it rather than less of it. Right? Wealth and income. Right? Maybe your conception of the good is that you want to serve the poor and you want to make the world a better place for the downtrodden. That's as you know, great of a conception of the good as pursuing your own pleasure and happiness. If that's the case, you might not want wealth or income for yourself, but if you want to make the uh, economically downtrodden better off, you're gonna, more money is going to be better for serving that mission than less money. So even if you don't want to use it for your own personal uh, um, satisfaction, wealth and income are good. And then also, they're good even if you say, you know what, I'm going to help the world without even uh, trying to raise money. Um, but it's still a good thing. It's just that you don't necessarily make use of it. Same thing with the right to vote. Just because you don't go to the polls doesn't mean you're like, yeah, you know what, take my right to vote because someday you might want to use that. Um, these things are all good in, good in themselves. Okay, That's what good means. They are useful for a rational individual pursuing their life plan. But 
they are social productions. They don't exist if it weren't for a cooperative scheme. And certainly offices, right? Offices don't even exist until you actually have some institution to occupy that office. Opportunities don't just come along, right? It, opportunities are created by social interaction. So for Rawls, the important thing is, and this is where already you can see that you, we're gonna have a pretty different kind of thought experiment where instead of starting out with a bundle of rights that adhere to the individual, life, liberty, and property, we start off with a bundle of primary social goods. And what is being done in Locke's state of nature is the rational individual is trying to figure out how to best protect their rights. That's the problematic. The problematic in the original position is how are we going to distribute the primary social goods. That's the task. And so it really, it, it does kind of make sense to think of it more as a rational being in a room. Essentially, this is a technocratic type of task as opposed to a more cinematic type of task. Like, okay, I'm in this inconvenient and secure situation. How rationally can I think my way out of it so that I get more, I get a better life by turning over some, uh, some sort of thing. This is, we've got these primary social goods and how can we distribute them rationally? Um, how are we going to answer the question of what is a rational distribution of primary social goods? Uh, well, for Rawls, the answer is we put over the decision maker a veil of ignorance. And what the veil of ignorance is, is you don't know your place in society. You know society exists, you know that these are the primary social goods, you know your job is to distribute them in some fashion, to develop principles for distributing them, not to actually give them out, but to develop principles for the distribution of them. Um, you know how society works. You have basic sociological, economic, psychological, uh, political uh, knowledge, um, but you don't know who you are. And what you are doing is you are deciding the shape of a society that you will then have to live in, but you don't know where you're going to live in it. And because you are going to not know where you live in it, but you have to make it up, you're going to use your rationality very differently than if you were the person who was in charge of distributing primary social goods and you knew who you were. Because instrumental rationality is a tool for advancing our conception of the good. It is a, it's an instrument that allows us to navigate the world more effectively uh, than if we just made instinctual or emotional or, or, or random decisions. So if, we, if we're gonna build instrumental rationality into our uh, decision-making situation, which Rawls adopts that same uh, uh, approach that Locke does, but if we allow people to have personal knowledge they're going to use their instrumental rationality the way it's intended, which is to benefit their conception of the good, right? So if I get to decide how to distribute these really uh, great things, then I'm just gonna set it up so that I have more of them than others, and I have more than enough for myself, and I have a total surplus. That would be rational to do. That would be the best use of my instrumental rationality. That's what instrumental rationality is. It's self-serving, right? Um, in the most generic sense of it's, it, it is intended to serve your own good. So the veil of ignorance 
solves the problem of bias. And basically what it does is it, it, it says, okay, you have to not only have the abstract uh, singular version of rationality, but you have to apply it in a completely neutral way so that you can't bias yourself. So in Locke's account, there's no reason not to bias yourself. Uh, and in fact, you know, in the state of nature, here's one of the differences. The powerful um, who don't have a problem with the insecurity of, 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 uh, of um, enforcing their own rights, why would they turn over any rights to the government? Why would they create this powerful entity when they're already more powerful? This is one of the problems with Locke's uh, theory is that the rational individual in the state of nature, there's going to be a lot of different approaches. There's going to be some people like, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with this government because I'm doing just fine on my own. Rawls wants to address that, but also he wants to use this powerful concept of instrumental rationality, um, but he wants to avoid the pitfalls. Now, part of the reason why the veil of ignorance is necessary for Rawls and not for Locke is that Rawls is distributing primary social goods, which is a different task than protecting your rights. When you come into the world with the rights to life, liberty, and property, and uh, your rational, your job and your rational, rational faculty is used to protect those rights, you can be partial. You can, you can know who you are because you're protecting your rights, and you're essentially in the same boat as everybody else. This is a very different task, the distribution task. You're setting up principles so that these good things that are created by social uh, cooperation go out into the world in, a, in one particular way instead of in another particular way. And that is a very different task than guarding, safeguarding your rights. So the original position's decision is a different one. In the state of nature, the question is, how do I address the inconveniences and insecurities of the state of nature? Here, the question is, how do I distribute the primary social goods? The purpose is still to generate rational consent to legitimize the government, and the, purpose, and the outcome is still a set of principles that tell us what the government has to do, can do, and can't do, um, but the uh, sort of initial situation based on the fact that Rawls is looking at this instead of at a bundle of rights creates uh, a very different uh, type of process. It creates the need for the veil of ignorance, and then it actually creates a quite different outcome. Because here's how his accounting goes. In the original position, behind the veil of ignorance, and really it's like, could you take a sexualized concept and make it even more sexualized in a kind of a, you know, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey kind of way than talking about the veil of ignorance? I know, I'm sorry. I can't ever teach Rawls without at least going there for a second. And it's weird, extra weird doing it without anybody in the room to kind of titter or feel uncomfortable or laugh or outright be like, that's crazy. It's really extra weird to do it to an iPhone like this. Um, but here, I'm doing it uh, and, I'll, and I'll move past it now. I'm gonna take a drink of water to actually cleanse the palate. <clears throat> what will you decide in the original position? Well, Rawls goes through the primary social goods one by one because he sees them as distinct. So there's gonna be distinct principles for distributing each one of them, okay? Uh, rights and liberties. Rationally, you would think like, okay, what, I don't know who I am in society, but I'm gonna want all of these. I'm gonna want the biggest set of rights and liberties possible because these are, of all the three, like this is in order of uh, priority, right? This is number one, useful, number two, useful, number three, useful, right? Uh, you, some people might say, well, money is the most useful, but if you don't have any rights, then money doesn't do you any good. Um, and opportunities in offices actually, because uh, uh, our wealth and income could potentially be extracted from us, taken away, 
office and opportunities are going to be a way one that you can that you can uh, create how uh, the rules of how people's income and wealth are distributed and redistributed and opportunities give you the chance to have more wealth and income so this is the prior order one by one rights and liberties are awesome now the rational uh, being is going to say okay great everybody gets a giant set of rights the biggest set of rights uh, that is compatible with everybody else having an equal set of rights. So that's the first principle. Here are the principles. And uh, Locke calls these the principles of justice. The first principle is the equal liberty principle. And it's the equal liberty principle because every, it's, it's good to have the biggest uh, set of rights possible. I don't know who I'm going to be. So instead of saying, well, you know what? Women get fewer rights or men get fewer rights. Uh, and I'll flip a coin and see which one of them I am. Uh, because what I really want is I really want tons of rights, uh, but some people have to have fewer rights than others to have those tons of rights, so I'll take a risk. No, that's not a rational way to approach it because you're talking about your entire life uh, prospects when you get out of the veil of ignorance and go into the world and have to live under these principles. The rational being will ask, though, is there a way in which I would be better off, whoever I am, by departing from the equal liberty principle. Is there a way to make my life better by giving some people more liberty than other people? And to Rawls, the answer is no. Uh, there's, there, there's no gain to, uh, to a person who has fewer rights in giving more rights to other people. Now, I think that's problematic. Because in our society, we don't give certain rights to people who are under age 18. We don't give voting rights to 16-year-olds and 15-year-olds, or even 17 and 3 quarter year olds. Um, so, and we do so because it actually makes our rights more valuable uh, than if everybody gets to vote. Um, so there are inequalities in rights that actually do seem rationally beneficial. Uh, now, I think the Rawls would respond like, okay, but, but people, kids grow out of that inequality and ultimately that you age into a full equality. And I think that that's a reasonable answer. But the fact that we do distribute rights unequally, and we might say, well, voting rights don't belong to felons either. And some people might disagree with that and other people might agree with it. But that's also a way in which you say, well, felons chose to commit a crime and they knew that one of the punishments of that, or at least they should have known, was losing their right to vote. So um, I don't have to worry when I go out of the veil of ignorance that someone's going to just take my rights away from me. I would have to give those rights away. Um, but we do distribute rights and liberties unequally, and it seems to be justified. But Rawls is pushing back against that, and he's saying, no, equal liberty is the principle that a rational, ignorant, but knowledgeable, ignorant of personal information, but uh, knowledgeable about the way the world works, would not depart from this. It doesn't make any sense to, you're not going to get more rights by giving other people even more rights than you. The um, second principle of liberty, Locke, or Rawls actually uh, has only two principles, and I'll read them. The two principles, the second principle is A and B, and I'll read the principles of justice. And uh, this is from our reading, page 213. Um, first, each person is to have an equal right to the most extensive basic liberty compatible with a similar liberty for others. So equal liberty and its most extensive possible. If we're going to be distributing primary social goods, we want to maximize a good thing, right? And so what this means is that 
no, people don't have total liberty. The harm principle or some other kind of principle will still obtain um, because uh, if somebody has 100% liberty, that's going to be less than 100% for somebody else. So we're all going to get, to just kind of pick a number, we're all going to get 95% uh, liberty instead of some people get a hundred and that means that other people are going to end up with zero because when you have hundred percent liberty you can potentially kill people. The most extensive, we want to max that out so that it's equally distributed across everybody else. It, there's no rational reason why it would uh, make any sense to pick a different principle. Um, the second principle, social and economic inequalities, and this, this is social and economic, uh, are to be arranged so that they are both A, reasonably expected to be to everyone's advantage, and be attached to positions and offices open to all, right? So uh, he, he actually, I think he has it reversed uh, it, it from the order he later does it because it's uh, number two applies to 2A, which is um, open to all, open opportunity. Now notice it's not equally distributed. It doesn't mean that all offices and opportunities are equally distributed, that it's open opportunity to uh, to, for the opportunities as well as the offices. Why? Well, from the point of view of a rational being who doesn't know their place in society and who doesn't necessarily know their particular level of talent, but one of the things they do know is that in society there are differential levels of talent, intelligence, skill, energy, fortitude, uh, uh, morality. There, there are different levels of all of those things that are important. Offices are really important, like people who occupy positions, whether it be government positions or corporate positions, uh, the way they do their job is going to affect the rest of society. Unlike rights, which you can't grow uh, people's t uh, possession of them by an unequal distribution of it, you can grow benefits that flow from offices by having an unequal distribution of offices. Right? So some people are actually going to get better positions than other people. Some people are going to be uh, able to you know, run a government agency or a corporation or a managerial division, and other people are going to have to be workers and are going to have to be, uh, not have those offices. So there's going to be an inequality here. That's rational, though, if by being open to all people, one, we have a real competition so that the best get in that place, and two, so that the benefits that come to the people who don't get those offices are actually better, bigger, than if those offices were distributed equally, right? Let's say we have a thousand jobs in our hypothetical society, and instead of, and a thousand people, instead of rotating people around those thousand jobs so that everybody does each of the jobs an equal amount of time, um, we're gonna just allow those jobs to be open to people to uh, compete for them, and the best gets it, but we're not gonna curtail opportunity, because I don't know, let's say, let's say, uh, we're thinking, well, well, let's limit the number of uh, applicants to uh, high government jobs to just men because we want less competition. That's, first of all, I don't know that I'm not a woman outside the veil of ignorance, so that would not make any sense. Second of all, um, that's a loss of human capital, right? When you give away 50% of your potential uh, workforce, you're throwing away possibly, uh, and you know, at, at least at 50% chance, uh, the best person for the job. So opportunity is a, essentially it's a functional value from, it's to, to the rational individual in the original position. We don't want to curtail some people from getting those jobs 
because what we're interested in is having a be the best life we possibly can outside the veil of ignorance, and we don't know where we're going to be. What we do know is that if the best people for jobs do those jobs, that the world will be better. You can't enlarge the pie of rights by distributing them unequally, but you can enlarge the pie of benefits and, uh, um, and goods that are created by offices by these jobs, uh, by having them done better. So we want them done as well as they can be done, and that means that they should be uh, um, available to everybody because we don't know who's going to uh, be the best or not. Now, so there's a sort of meritocratic open society here, and that's rational to accept. If I'm not very smart or skilled, my life will be better if people who are occupying positions of importance are smart and skilled rather than if they're not, right? And this, I'm gonna pull in a coronavirus uh, government response example here, right? In a situation like we're in right now, we are all vulnerable to this uh, fast-spreading uh, deadly disease. And we are all better off with people who are making decisions uh, for uh, um, the world today if they're good at what they're doing than if it's just a random rotation or if it's just people who get to have that job because uh, you know, they knew somebody who knew somebody or because they're loyal to Donald Trump or something. We now know how important it is for us, even those of us who don't have power, for the positions of power and the uh, positions of uh, responsibility to be occupied by people who, are, who know what they're doing. And we all also know, like I know, I don't want to be the head of the CDC, right? I don't want to be the head of, of the Center for Infectious Diseases. I don't want to be uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Like I, I know that I don't know that stuff. I want somebody who, I'm not better off if I have that job, right? Um, maybe I personally am because then I can just have a bunch of ventilators and all the stuff that I need to keep myself safe, but my family isn't better off necessarily. Um, I, we're all better off when people are in those positions who are good at that position. If we're talking about offices of economic development, right, the, the amount of, of wealth in a society is not fixed. It can be increased or decreased with, with uh, sensible uh, business and uh, economic management. It can be increased or with bad management, we can end up with uh, a, a terrible situation. Again, we're facing a serious recession. The better the government is, is handling this economic crisis, the less damaging it's going to be. So we want people who know what they're doing in those positions. So, unlike with equal liberty, unlike with liberty, excuse me, where departing from equality, there's no sense to it. We don't enlarge the pie of rights by giving some people more than other people. We can enlarge the pie of benefits to society if we let some people have uh, offices and other people not. And of course, that pie gets enlarged when the best people are doing that job. The reason why I open opportunity is because one, I don't know, like I don't want jobs to be not available to 18 year olds because I might be an 18 year old. What if an 18 year old is the genius who actually can figure this out? Let's open it that, let's not say that this office has to be, you know, uh, you have to be at least 35 years old. Um, again, you can age into that, but uh, why, why curtail that, that use of human capital? Um, but it does make sense to distribute it unequally. The same is true for wealth and income, and this is uh, later in the work, and I don't think I actually gave you the part of the reading where this comes out in Rawls. The difference principle says that differences of wealth and income can exist, but they have to benefit the least well-off. So unlike liberty, rights and liberties, which 
no one benefits from uh, uh, distributing that money equally. Nobody behind the veil of ignorance. Uh, the people who, like, let's say only men get to have rights, obviously men benefit from it, but in the veil of ignorance, you're not going to take that risk. Um, equality, inequality isn't beneficial to the abstract, rational individual who doesn't know who they are in society. Here, some, for, for offices and opportunities, some uh, inequality in terms of distribution of offices makes a difference. You, we all benefit, even the least well-off benefit from good people doing, uh, being in, in these positions. So we have an open opportunity to all, the opportunity is open to all, but not everybody gets uh, every job or gets beneficial positions with high salaries and, and power and authority. Um, because the, the least skilled benefit from the highly skilled being in these important positions. For wealth and income, inequality can absolutely be beneficial to the least well-off. Um, and again, getting back to the veil of ignorance, unknown place in society, I should have put this up here, we have general social knowledge. We know it doesn't take very sophisticated economics to know that um, inequalities can produce an, uh, an amount of output that is greater than when we have equality, right? Uh, the specialization, the division of labor, people have an unequal role in, 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 in the productive process. That's essentially, that actually is what makes for greater productivity, right? Having a completely flat power structure, it, that's possible, but it sacrifices the highest level of productivity possible. Um, the idea here, you don't know where you're going to be in society, but you do know that you want more rather than less of all three of these things, right? Um, so much like uh, the uh, person in, the rational person in Locke's state of nature is going to jealously guard their rights, you're going to jealously seek to maximize all of these things for yourself, for your unknown self who's out there actually in society. So it's rational to want to increase all of these things. Inequalities that, in, economic inequalities that increase the size of the pie are gonna be tempting, but not any inequality that increases the size of the pie because the least well-off are the ones who are, the, the, the rational thinker in the original position is gonna be worried about. It's like, okay, the overall size of the pie isn't my concern. My slice of the pie is what really matters to me um, I want not the pie to be as big as possible. I want my slice to be as big as possible. I don't know who I am. I could be a rich person. I could be a poor person. I could be uh, super smart and talented and energetic, or I could be uh, disabled and not able to work very well. Whoever I am, and really chances are that I'm going to be not in a great situation, right? Because of the way that the talents and uh, skills and abilities are, uh, are distributed in social position out in the world, I'm probably going to be among the not 1%, right? So I'm gonna think like the 99%. I won't accept any inequality. That wouldn't be rational because some inequalities are gonna diminish my slice of the pie. I will, however, accept, and it will be smart, it will be rational to accept inequalities that increase my slice of the pie. Even if they increase other people's slices by more, and even if my slice is way smaller than somebody else's, as long as my slice is bigger than it would have been un, uh, with an equal distribution of wealth and income, then that's rational. Um, and I want that amount bigger to be as big as it possibly can.
right? So they have to benefit the least well off and they have to benefit the least well off in the most beneficial way. So you can't just give like, oh, so under an equal system, you would have uh, five cents because we wouldn't be very productive where everybody would have five cents. And under this vastly uh, unequal and massively productive uh, society, you're gonna have six cents and some people are gonna have a billion dollars, right? Um, you're better off, right? That's, that, that would technically adhere to this. But if there's a different way of having inequality that makes me go from five cents to $50, even if nobody, even if the overall pie is less big than under the six cents billionaire bottom and top, um, the difference principle is going to demand and the rational individual in the original position is going to demand the best bottom possible. Right? Now, we can't necessarily, in reality, engineer inequalities so that we can say, oh, well, here's the perfect set that's going to get us from five cents for everybody to the lowest person has $50. Um, we can't know exactly what's going to do that. These principles are abstract principles that will be used to judge government policies and uh, potential uh, legislation to say, okay, does it, will it have the effect of actually benefiting the least well-off? And do we have other policies that would benefit the, uh, the least well-off more than this one? Um, we can't predict with 100% accuracy exactly how much benefit each of these is gonna be, but we're gonna weigh them using that criteria. Um, so this is, uh, these are very different sets of principles than the principles that Locke devises. Um, because uh, Locke's actually confining the government to a particular role and uh, saying, okay, that role is all the government can do. What Rawls is doing, actually, there's a big role here, right? Because the government is going to be, our political system is going to be distributing these primary social goods. That's a huge role. And the interest of the rational uh, individual is that the government do that, play that role in a way that actually increases the availability of these social goods. So there is going to be more than just that limited role of enforcing rights. There is going to be more than just that limited role of saying that we're going to only take as little of your property as possible so that we can pay for an impartial, powerful uh, judiciary and executive branch and a legislative branch to be able to set the rules. Um, and that's all we can do. There, like, there could be a really big presence for the government. And that's rational. What do we want from the government? In Rawls's hands, we want it to get into our hands the biggest share of the primary social goods possible. And that is a bigger role. Now, Rawls is a liberal. And the reason he's a liberal is because he starts from the exact same spot that uh, Locke starts with. He respects the individual, the rational individual throughout. Um, but he has a different theory a different accounting of one where rights are in his view rights are a social production and therefore can be distributed socially and to Rawls rights are an individual possession that will be uh, guarded very jealously um, but two Rawls sees that the rational individual is going to look to the government for more solutions than the rational individual in Locke's state of nature. In Locke's state of nature, there's really only one major problem that the government can solve. Otherwise, the government then becomes a problem. To Rawls, because these things are societal productions, and because uh, the rules that are created and enforced by the government are going to impact how these are distributed, um, the government has a, has a large role. But the individual and the rational individual are still fundamentally respected. And right here, this is the main thing that 
connects Locke, or excuse me, Rawls, with the sort of original Enlightenment liberals like Locke, is that rights are still, the individual rights are still a really important thing. They come from society, they're primary social goods, but they still are attached to individuals. Not attached to individuals as they come into the world, either by God's hand or by evolution, but attached to individuals by this social system that we create through, uh, through our government uh, regulation, our government action, our government production of these goods. Um, I think that you know, Rawls' accounting of what these things are as social goods rather than as individual goods, to me that makes more sense um, than the idea that uh, uh, property, right, uh, liberties, our, our rights, our talents, that they come attached to us as individuals. Now I said talents, and you might think, well, your talents come attached to you, but there's raw talent and then there's cultivated talent. Right? You might have a natural IQ of 150, but your education, the cultivation of that IQ is going to make you either more valuable or less valuable filling one of these uh, offices. Right? Let's say that Donald Trump actually really does have the giant high IQ that he says he has. Um, society did not cultivate that IQ for, to outfit him to, uh, to occupy the office of the presidency very well. Somebody with a lower IQ who has been cultivated more successfully by society would do a better job as president than Donald Trump is doing. Um, and so our talents do come, in, uh, come into the world in their raw, uncultivated form attached to us as individuals. But most of what we do in the world is a result of a combination of our raw talents and abilities and the way it's been cultivated. So it adheres to our bodies and our minds and our actions, but in a way, it belongs at least partially to society. So that's one of the things that Rawls is saying is that, the, that these primary goods, because they are social goods, they exist or they are amplified by schemes of cooperation, they belong to society and therefore it's society's right to distribute them. And uh, Rawls is definitely a serious liberal in the sense of loving liberty because he puts, he says, this is the most valuable uh, um, social good. And he puts it at the top and he creates it as equal liberty. There's no trade-offs at the most extensive uh, form of uh, liberty possible so that everybody has the same set. That's a pretty serious liberal commitment. And it, it, it actually is more important. These principles go in order, just like these primary social goods go in order. So if something would uh, increase the economic benefits of the least well-off, but it would violate equal liberty, then it's not allowed because this is primary. Um, so that's, the, that's a, definitely a way in which Rawls is a liberal, but a quite different kind of liberal. Um, really, realistically, what Locke, or excuse me, what Rawls has done is he has, he has taken uh, liberalism and handed it to a different group of thinkers. Locke hands liberalism to libertarians, limited government, right? Rawls says, no, you know what? Really, uh, the mantle of what is liberal belongs to essentially, this, this could be called social democrats, liberty-loving social democrats. Um, so, and, and Rawls thinks that's the proper place. Now, you can see clearly if Locke and Rawls are relatives, which they absolutely are, Right? in terms of the liberal family of ideas. They are very close relatives. They both start with the sovereign rational individual. 
Locke starts with the sovereign, uh, the rational sovereign rights holding individual, and Rawls starts with the rational sovereign individual. They both seek an accounting of how uh, the government can be considered to be legitimate via rational consent. So they are very, they're super closely related because they start from the same foundations. But because they have different presuppositions, rights holding, Locke, primary social goods, Rawls, they take their thought experiment, state of nature in Locke's case, original position in Rawls's case, and they go in different directions. And we end up with quite a different set of principles, both of which, in my opinion anyway, uh, deserve the title of liberal with a capital L. They both are liberty-loving. They both start with uh, the rational liberty-seeking individual as the foundational uh, um, starting point of, uh, of a political philosophy. Um, they both deserve to be called liberal, but clearly, the principles and the uh, type of government that they envision, not, not necessarily the type of government as in democracy or not democratic, but the kinds of things the government has to do, can do, then can't do, it's gonna, those three uh, buckets are going to have very different contents in Locke's hands and in Rawls's hands. So it does, in a way, the difference boils down to, um, do you buy Locke's account? of individuals as fundamentally rights holding, we come into the world with these rights that we jealously guard, or Rawls's account that uh, rights and liberties, among other things, are social productions, and uh, therefore it's society's right to distribute them the way that a rational in individual who doesn't know their place in society would distribute them. So you can see where this difference comes down to. But consent, <laughs> legitimacy based on consent, Consent based on a singular notion of abstract rationality, that is the heart and soul of political liberalism. And uh, you can't be a political liberal without that starting point. All right, we're going to look uh, at the other big pillar of political liberalism uh, in the next lecture, which is human rights. Uh, I know this was a long lecture. Possibly the next one's going to be shorter. Um, they're going to vary an awful lot. I do, I will make sure that all the lectures stay below an hour and 50 minutes, uh, and I think I cut it kind of close this time, but that's the way it goes. All right, signing off from day 25. I'll see you guys in a couple days.